Welcome to the future of Wound Care Education and Collaboration. Wound Masterclass Academy is delighted to present this immersive interactive event. This is a global event where our physical and virtual worlds will join to take wound care learning into a whole new dimension. Today we invite you to join two sessions with us, the Biofilm Masterclass with Dr. Mitch Sanders and Dr. Phil Bowler. And our next segment is a virtual interactive clinic that promises to revolutionize the way we experience wound care training. We encourage you to interact with us as much as you can over the next hour and a half. And thank you once again for joining us. So welcome to the Biofilm Masterclass. I'm joined today by Dr. Mitch Sanders and Dr. Phil Bowler. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Hello. Thanks very much. Would you like to introduce yourselves for the global audience? Hi everyone, my name is uh, Phil Bowler. Um, I've got a long um, career in, in wound care, uh, in research and development. Um, I worked for a commercial organisation for uh, for over 30 years, um, but my background is very much in, in the area of, of microbiology, clinical microbiology, uh, particularly in understanding infections, what goes wrong, uh, the implications of, of biofilm, um, looking at antimicrobial and antimicrobial antibiofilm therapies as well. Uh, I've been very much involved in the development of, of wound dressings. Uh, today I work as an independent consultant um, helping uh, various companies in the areas of infection control. So Mitch Sanders, uh, like Phil, I spent too much time in college and then uh, started my first company, which was a diagnostic wound care company called ECI Biotech. We developed a, a diagnostic for bacterial broad spectrum for bacterial infection called bacterial status, and it's sold by WoundCheck. And uh, Phil's very kind. He's he's written over 110 papers, uh, has many patents, is considered one of the leading experts in in biofilms in the world. So he's he's being uh, I, he's always been kind of a mentor to me. Always looked up to him and uh, uh, followed all his his great work. Um, so after, after, uh, doing diagnostics, uh, for 16 years, I joined a consulting firm, um, and have developed numerous products in advanced wound care and focus a lot on, uh, the chronic inflammatory phase of disease in wound care, infection, actually cancer and, uh, traumatic brain injury. So I'm studying neuroinflammatory diseases. Uh, when you get a TBI, it's just like getting a wound. And so I'm starting to study um, neuroinflammatory processes as well. Uh, more recently, we just launched a new uh, consulting firm out of Allure Health called uh, ProDev Labs. And uh, ProDev Labs, the sponsor for this segment as well. Thank you very much to ProDev Labs for their support. And thank you, gentlemen, for joining us uh, with this global audience. Uh, just a message for the audience here. If you'd like to text any questions into the chat, we'd be really happy to address any questions as you go along. Um, if you'd like to ask a video question, that's also possible um, by just clicking that option on your screen. Uh, so, uh, Phil, if I can come to you first, should we just talk a little bit about the definition for biofilms? Because I think it's an area where there are a lot of myths and misconceptions around it. Uh, so it'd be good just to start with the definition if we can. Oh, well, yeah. Um, I could talk all day about biofilm, of course, but um, yeah, I think I should start by saying that, that, that biofilm is, is nothing new. Um, in fact, it's one of the, uh, the oldest life forms on Earth as, as bacteria evolved on Earth. 
um, getting over four billion years ago now, biofilm developed with it. Um, but it's only over the last, um, I would say, 40 years that the term biofilm has been um, used in medicine and, and medical microbiology, and much more recently um, in wound care. Uh, but biofilm is the natural way and the predominant way in which bacteria live. Uh, bacteria much prefer to attach to a surface. Um, and once they've attached to a surface, uh, it could be a fluid surface, uh, not just a solid surface. But once they've attached to a surface, then they begin to secrete um, a polymeric matrix around themselves, which essentially is the biofilm and the biofilm protects the bacteria within from the hostilities in the outside world. So it may be from extreme environmental conditions, uh, it may be from immune cells, it may be antibiotics or, or biocides, um, but biofilm is the natural protective mechanism for uh, bacterial survival. And it has, it's not just exopolysaccharides, it's got DNA in there and RNA. Um, and the the bacterial uh, biofilm is usually deep enough that the, the middle of the biofilm is pretty senescent. And so it's resistant to mechanical shear as well as resistant to antibiotics. And they're, they're quite clever, these biofilms, aren't they? Because uh, with the challenges that we set them, they often change their phenotype and genotype to kind of adapt. So they're sort of they're in a, a, a process of ad adaptation for their survival as well. So that's an interesting thing for us to kind of tackle uh, during this discussion too. Uh, should we talk a little bit about um, why biofilm is important for us in the wound care community? Well, well, from, from my perspective, and, you know, we should look beyond wound care as well, because biofilm is inextricably linked to chronic infections irrespective of whether it be a, a chronic wound infection or a urinary tract infection or infections associated with cystic fibrosis or ear infections, these are all biofilm-related infections. Um, and the problem is that, well, biofilm is the root of that problem. Um, and it's very difficult for uh, antibiotics, antiseptics to work effectively. Um, against the biofilm because the bacteria within the biofilm um, <clears throat> are protected. Um, and you, these biofilm infections or chronic infections are very, very different from acute infections. And I published a paper uh, on this with a, a wound ostomy incontinence nurse, Jenny Herlow, back in, in 2022, where we looked to differentiate acute and chronic wound infections because ultimately these infections need to be treated differently and I, and I can talk about this later but whereas acute wound infections predominantly involve planktonic bacteria so these are the the free living uh, metabolic highly metabolic cells that are invading host tissue um, but are highly susceptible to antimicrobial agents then biofilm um, of course is is the real cause of these chronic infections because biofilm remains it's very difficult for antibiotics for antiseptics to to get to these bacteria um, and what the biofilm can actually do is to take control of the host inflammatory response um, and again I'll, I'll talk about that a bit later but for me 
that is a, a really key aspect of biofilm in wounds because it stays there, it's resilient, it's recalcitrant, it's difficult to remove, and it essentially it hijacks the host inflammatory response. And when you have a delayed inflammatory response, that often leads to poor outcomes for wound healing, as well as, you know, um, when you have a, a, a deep biofilm infection, oftentimes you can have a graft loss when you're, you know, putting uh, a graft on. And so, you know, you have to really, that's why people like to debride and and uh, clean out the wound bed before you yeah. use an expensive tissue or use use a graft because the the if the inflammatory phase is still stalled you're never going to allow proliferation and healing to yeah. occur but you know we refer to and it has been referred to a lot that the inflammatory process is is stalled but in fact in these wounds it's highly active there is so much inflammatory activity going on within these wounds so Again, if I go back to uh, an acute wound infection where you have, it could be a staph aureus, a pseudomonas, or a combination that uh, are invading viable tissue, then, of course, the neutrophils, the first line of, of defense, immune defense, they come into that site. Uh, they try to directly attack the bacteria, take them within the cell. Uh, these neutrophils undergo an oxidative burst, and they've got various killing mechanisms for killing these bacterial cells if they're not able to do that then that's when antibiotics come in to help the the neutrophils work more effectively but in in a biofilm situation um as i mentioned a few minutes ago the biofilm actually hijacks the host inflammatory response and this is a term that was uh, coined by randy walcott um probably 15 years or so ago now and I think it's absolutely right because the biofilm um, is tolerant to attack by immune cells. So as a foreign body, the, the biofilm is, is attracting neutrophils into that site. The neutrophils are trying to get to the bacteria. They can't get to the bacteria. So they start to get frustrated. They start to get angry. They recruit more neutrophils. The neutrophils then start to spill their enzymes and the toxic metabolites and the neutrophil extracellular traps into that surrounding environment, which ultimately damages host tissue. So the biofilm in a wound is working essentially like a parasite. Um, it, it's using the host inflam inflammatory response to its own benefit. Um, and as the host inflammatory response damages host tissue, wound tissue, um, then as that devitalizes, it provides more nutrition for the biofilm. So, so getting rid of that biofilm is absolutely crucial because, you know, biofilm infections generally are characterized by these slow, sustained, persistent inflammatory uh, processes. And that's because, you know, the biofilm remains. Uh, so removing that biofilm, whether it by physical means, antimicrobial means or various antibiofilm strategies, it's absolutely essential. And the the exotoxins that the bacteria secrete, these proteases, can hyperactivate the matrix metalloproteases of the host. So you have this advanced proliferative cycle of, and then you're degradating all the important growth factors and cytokines yeah. in the wound bed, and yeah. that's why you can't get moving out of the inflammatory phase. Yeah.
Yeah, so it's, it's a multi multifactorial blockade to healing, essentially, um, from what you're describing. And would it be safe to say that all chronic wounds or all hard to heal wounds have biofilms? I wouldn't doubt it. I... <laughs> Nick, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one point before we get to that, let's talk about critical colonization and the, the, your thoughts around how things have changed a little bit around our thinking. So the, the old uh, antithesis, what was E. Davis thinking about, um, you know, you get to 10 of the fifth, you, you're gonna have an infection or it's gonna lead to an infection. I've yeah. seen obviously when you have, it's really based on the, uh, the back, not the, the, not just the bacterial load, but also the proteases or the, the, the toxins that the bacteria is secreting. Cause when you have, when you have a, a bacteria like streptogenes, it's secreting a lot of uh, protease, it can exacerbate an infection very quickly. And I think sometimes those proteases are used initially to kind of work their way in and start forming the biofilm. Um, and then once they're in the biofilm, they can actually make more uh, exotoxins as well. Um, so, but let's, Phil, talk about your thoughts around um, critical colonization. I think it was a good start, but I yeah. think we've kind of advanced our understanding of biofilms now and also understanding of virulence, that it really depends on the virulence. And these are polymicrobial communities. You don't just have staph or pseudomonas. You've got two or three other organisms in there as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, but before I get to critical colonization, Megan, I'll, I'll just go back to your question very briefly about my thoughts on um, are all hard to heal or chronic wounds, uh, do they all contain biofilm? I would say that the chances are yes. I, as a, I'm not a clinician, but if I was a clinician and a wound wasn't healing normally, following that normal wound healing trajectory, um, it's got, gone off kilt somewhere, then I would immediately suspect biofilm absolutely and i would look for anti-biofilm strategies um, in terms of critical colonization mitch yeah uh, it's a term that has been used um oh what 25 years now must must have been uh, if not longer um you know and I, it served its time um I, I think it had value you know that point so as as bacteria colonize a wound, uh, obviously, with increasing colonization, then they can pose a, a greater problem. You know, I think when critical colonization was first introduced, we weren't talking about biofilm um, it, it, in those days. Um, it was about that balance between the host and the microorganisms. So um, as bacteria do colonize that, that wound, at what point, um, you know, is that colonization critical? Um, in terms of stopping that wound from healing. And of course, every wound is different. Every patient is different. The underlying comorbidities are different. So uh, critical colonization, you can't say that the critical colonization occurs at, at, at any one, one point in time. It will do for one patient, but but not the same necessarily for, for another patient. But it was that, that sort of critical point uh, at which the host is no longer able to control the, the the microbial contamination uh, and it's tipping in favor of the microbes and therefore you need um, additional support, antimicrobial support, uh, whether it's antibiotics, antiseptics, debridement, whatever it is to, 
to really get um, get the wound uh, and the host back in control of that. Um, today, critical colonization is not a term that I would use. Um, I think it has been superseded. Um, you know, we talk about that continuum that you see in so many papers, you know, the, the continuum from contamination, colonization through to infection and somewhere along that, that that line you, you've got you've got critical colonization you know i think today 21st century we're talking more about biofilm and the biofilm continuum um of course you know biofilm starts as planktonic cells attaching to a, a wound surface um if that wound if it's an acute wound and it's sterile at the outset it gets contaminated with bacteria they will be planktonic cells uh, but if they can adapt and attach very quickly, they will start to form biofilm. So you've then got that that biofilm continuum um, that can ultimately, maybe 48 hours later, lead to um, a mature biofilm that may or may not be be visible um, to, to the naked eye. So I, I think it's more relevant these days to, to talk about the, a biofilm continuum um, because I think that's more realistic of, of the clinical situation. But, um, you know, at what point do you do you control? You know, biofilm, um, as you mentioned earlier, Mitch, biofilm can form very, very quickly uh, as wound care practitioners need to be looking for those signs of abnormal healing, things going a bit wrong and and look to anti-biofilm strategies as quickly as possible. Um, Randy Walcott, again, um, one of the pioneers and leaders in the field, um, you know, he, in recent times, he, he's spoken about, you know, when does a wound become chronic? You know, is it is it 30 days? Is it is it longer? Um, but now we're considering biofilm. Biofilm, we know, forms very, very quickly. So a wound may be start to become chronic within days, um, you know, to that chronic non-healing situation um so again his approach has very much been you know treat early you know if there are signs there if the warning signs there don't wait 30 days for a wound to become chronic you know get on it straight away and apply appropriate wound hygiene to um encourage that wound to heal as quickly and as effectively as possible and what what i'm amazed at is that when you you know when you look at the wound um, from a clinical perspective, you know, maybe 25% are clearly infected just visually, right? 25% um, are not, but there's this gray area of, of 50% that you really can't tell based on just clinical signs. And that's where the moleculite or other imaging capabilities have really enhanced our understanding that the biofilm could be very localized. Yeah. And sometimes you can't, it can be a deep tissue infection where you don't even see it, but it's brewing. And um, that's, you know, it's, it's, we use the moleculite even in preclinical studies now to help us better understand, um, you know, what is the biofilm doing in the, in the context of a, a preclinical model? Yeah. Uh, because the challenge is, as I say, unless it's a, a overblown infection, it's obvious it's staph or it's pseudomonas or, uh, you know, depending on the color, it's <laughs> erasure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to to know if if you have a stalled wound, you have to consider that it is likely has a biofilm, and that may be the the etiology that's that's causing an issue. But there could be other conditions or other underlying. When it, if you have a diabetic foot ulcer, 
you may just be stalled um, because you're you don't have enough ATP and there's a whole host of other things going on. Or if you have a VLU, you, you may have venous insufficiency and that could be uh, brewing. But I do think there is a clear indication when you have an infection, the cost of healthcare goes way up. Yeah. And um, also the concern about if you have an infection, you're more likely to have a lower uh, LEA, lower extremity amputation. And so it can exacerbate the uh, the, the whole um, process of trying to heal the wound in the first place. Yeah. You know, I, I think you, you touched on an important point there, Mitch, you know, in terms of sort of the subtle signs associated with chronic wound infections or, or, or in hard to heal wounds, because it's very, very different from clinical manifestations in, a, in an acute wound, of course, where you've got those actively invading uh, planktonic cells, um, you know, the inflammatory signs are, are very obvious. You know, you have a, a, a inflammation, uh, you have swelling, you have exudate, you have pain. Um, you know, these are all very, very clear clinical signs of an acute wound infection. But in, in chronic wound infections, um, those signs are, are, are very subtle. And, you know, many um, experts have, have published on this over the years and uh, Jenny Herlow and myself published it um, in the Journal of Wound Care, our paper differentiating acute and chronic wounds uh, infections um, in, in 2022. But, you know, the signs with, with chronic wound infections, they are subtle. Um, but when you review the literature, you see there are certain signs that 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 keep coming back um you know like sullen granulation tissue maybe hypergranulation um malodor bridging at the base of the wound friable granulation tissue that bleeds easily and so many of these um uh, these signs are linked to biofilm as well um and in fact earlier this year published another paper um where we um myself and um Christy Murphy, um, a vascular nurse specialist in, in Ottawa, in Canada, uh, introduced the term granulitis um, as a possible term to describe this um, biofilm-induced hyperinflammatory process because it often gets missed um, and it, 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 it can't be missed. It needs to be treated. Um, and again, back to another point that you, you mentioned, Mitch, the, you know, in terms of, of picking out that biofilm, uh, yeah, then there are devices today. You, you referred to the uh, fluorescent imaging device, the moleculite device, um, which certainly is able to, how I define it as these bacterial hotspots in the wound. And I think, um, you know, uh, the company moleculite are doing more research now to, to associate that with with biofilm presence as, as well, um, so technologies um, are certainly helping to to identify this condition. But then it requires appropriate and very quick treatment. When when I came into wound care thirty years ago, all we had was Gary Sabald's nerds and stones. <laughs> so does the wound smell? Is there a yeah. Um, yeah, and and all those things and. Um, the cool thing is now we have some, you know, there are some new tools and new um, diagnostics coming out that are really going to enhance our understanding of when you have 
a, you know, a true infection or whether you have fresh granulation tissue of, you know, how long can she, are you making sure you don't over debride a wound, making sure that, you know, you, you sharp debride it enough so that you can get to healthy tissues so we can start healing again. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see tremendous advances in diagnostics. I think it it delayed for quite a long time because of yeah. the regulatory um, issues around the U.S., certainly where the only indication or the only endpoint that the FDA ever recognized was healing. And so to have an infection diagnostic was really a challenge because mm -hmm. we had to show um, that the, if this diagnostic went off and two weeks later went off again, then your wound wasn't going to heal. So instead of thinking about a diagnostic like sensitivity and specificity and area under the curve like it would for any other diagnostic, we were forced, uh, Dr. Serena was forced to do like 650 patients for our first wound care diagnostic for bacterial infection because there was there's no there was no primary endpoint. Yeah. And hopefully now we're FDA is starting to recognize biofilms and debridement and all these other things that would have brought these technologies to market a lot faster. And yeah. I'm hoping it really advances the field over the next couple of years. Absolutely. What I'd like to do is change to fungal pathogens now and talk a little bit about candid albicans as well as seores. Yeah. Um, you know, we always think, you know, for wound infections, seores is, is the most common fungal infection, but certainly, um, uh, sorry, candid albicans is the most common fungal infection. Seores has become a really... Um, dangerously emerging pathogen because it's yeah. multi-drug resistant. Yeah. And uh, we've been making <clears throat> surface cleaning solutions for the EPA for a client. And um, other than C. diff, CRS has been one of our biggest challenges that we, it took quite a while to figure out how to kill it in less than a minute um, with a, with the right formulation. Cause it's, it's, it's really has some great pumps to pump out everything you try and put into it. Yeah. And um it it could it is starting to show up in the wound clinics as well. Yeah, yeah, no, no it, it is becoming a, a more recognised and notorious pathogen, as you say, Mitch. Um, multiple antibiotic resistance um, responsible for more and more infections. So, you know, it, it it's an organism that we definitely need to keep our eye on in in wound care. Um, <clears throat> it's more of an opportunistic pathogen. Um, you're less likely to to find it in in wounds generally than you know the, the the bacterial pathogens, and of course there are a good number of bacterial pathogens that that are multiple resistant as well. You know, Acinita bolmanii, um, Klebsiella pneumoniae, um, multi drug resistant Pseudomonas now as well. So you know we we've got to be very mindful of those because those are the organ the organisms that you you find most commonly in wounds. But, you know, I agree entirely, um, Mitch, that, that uh, Candida auris is becoming um, uh, a more significant problem, um, and especially in immunocompromised individuals and the like. Um, this is where, you know, as an opportunistic pathogen, Candida auris can... Uh, can take control, and and once it does, it's extremely difficult to right. uh, to eliminate. And you um, super infections from the seores as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. So one of the things that I wanted to point out, and then in part of the the, I think we only have a few minutes left because we've been we've been moving along so quickly. But um, uh, part of the reason why we don't have any new 
antibiotics is because of resistance and there weren't any good in vitro models. I think Greg Schultz had a great porcine um, explant model that everybody used, including my lab. The challenge with that model was that um, you had to use a lot of replicates and it wasn't consistent enough to do high throughput screens for drug screenings for new antibiotics or new antimicrobials. And um, as we turn towards the next generation of therapies for biofilms, people like Kane Biotech, as an example, are focusing on ways of destroying the biofilm, which I think are really cool. But if we don't have good assays for those, then it makes it very difficult to study. And, and uh, for those who do preclinical studies, um, uh, like uh, Phil and I, we've, we've always been challenged trying to make an infection in a pig or a in a diabetic mouse look as 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 like a, a true infection like it does in a, in a in a clinical in the clinical setting that's always been a challenge and that's how uh me and Hannah in my lab actually developed a way of 3d printing biofilms in a collagen substrate and in vitro what's been really cool is uh the standard deviation is very very low so you can go with one replicate and you can do it it's so reproducible that uh, every single 3D printed biofilm has the same number of bacteria, Staph aureus and Pseudomonas, that it makes it easy for high throughput screens. And you can do it in a 384 well format, uh, which and, and 96 well format, which is something we've never been able to do um, currently, which I think is a, a, a true innovation. Uh, the other thing that we found more recently is when you take these 3D printed biofilms and you actually put them in a diabetic wound, you form this beautiful super infection that is completely resistant to even uh, the beautiful products that Phil has made over the years uh, um, at Convitec. And uh, they're very resistant to antimicrobials and antibiotics. And they're very, so persistent that when you debride them out, they come right back. And they're so uh, prominent that they, they, they <laughs> after you cut them out, they spread right back form the whole wound and they actually form secondary wound sites because of the super infection that you have going on with this biofilm model. So we take a delayed mouse that normally delays up to, I don't know, 25 days, and now it goes out to 35 days because with this infection, if you don't have something that will stop the biofilm, it won't heal. So I'm hoping that this model becomes a kind of a gold standard uh, for doing future research in biofilm uh, antimicrobials and, and antibiotics. Credit to you, Mitch, um, and team. Um, yeah, and and hopefully it is, uh, you know, what you've developed there is a is a big step forward. Um, of course, you know, one of the big challenges today is that most of the traditional microbiology testing that is performed around the world in microbiology labs um, involves looking at planktonic bacteria. You know, you take a sample from, say, a wound, uh, the bacteria in the biofilm form. Um, if you, you you culture them and they grow, they you know they're now growing on a highly nutritious medium, um, and they can just revert to a planktonic form. So um, you know you're not testing them. Most laboratories don't test them as they they're existing clinically. So you know the the, the sooner that that um, microbiology laboratories can can move over to to undertaking, um, you know, biofilm testing and biofilm test methods, uh, the better. But of course, for that, methods have got to be um, relatively easy to perform. 
um, you know, reproducible, you know, ac across a whole series of, of labs across the world, even, you know, so, so uh, develop, you know, the, the CDC reactor model, sure. the model and so forth. But, you know, if, if you've now developed a very simple 3D printed um, collagen substrate that you can use to um, assess antibiofilm um, agents um, in vitro, as well as transplanting to uh, an animal and, and doing it in vivo experiments, then this is very exciting and um, and hopefully it's going to be a, a big step forward from a, a testing perspective and certainly standardization of, of test methods. Now, I think uh, we have a lot of hope for it and um, the hope that the in vitro model will be an ASTM method soon and that we'll also be applying Very good. Um, you know, 3D printed biofilms of anyone's choice from our lab. Um, uh, just in order, in an effort to collaborate as well as to expand the research on these this model system. And then, as I say, we have another paper for Negan to submit for Wound Masterclass. So she'll be very happy about the in vivo uh, models that we hope to do soon. So I look forward to submitting a paper in the next couple of weeks. Oh, we look forward to receiving it. But Mitch, I'm really interested to know what kind of infections you've managed to simulate in your 3D models, because I think that's what our kind of audience would be interested to to hear a bit more. I think you've got a granulitis model and a, a deep wound infection model as well. So are you able to, to tell us a little bit more about that? We're going to uh, share on the screen some of the photographs from your recent paper that you published with us uh, in the meantime. Yeah, and I think it, it goes back to Phil's recent paper around trying to come up, you know, with a uh, the right, uh, uh, Phil's been great about coming up with the right language to describe a true biofilm infection. That's where his paper on granulitis is really important. And um, what we found is that we, I certainly in vitro, we needed something that was going to be reproducible. And consistent from lab to lab and and you know as phil mentioned those other cdc tests and 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 um the drip flow model and what have you many of those tests are hard to do at scale for a high throughput screen mm -hmm. so when we're working with big pharma clients and excitingly many of them are interested in coming back into wound care um everybody said to me don't you have a better model <laughs> is there a way that we can do this reproducibly and then uh, consistently, when you have um, when you have a, a, an infected model in 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 the preclinical model, whether it's a porcine model or a rat or a, a, a mouse, you want it to truly represent what uh, clinicians are seeing uh, with real infections, real biofilm infections in in their wound. So that's what we were trying to achieve, and I think we've we've really made some good progress there in the past. It's been five years to develop this, like everything, <laughs> but it, I think it really has promise. So the, the, the point is that we've been able to make a clinical infection biofilm model that is persistent. It, um, it is pervasive. It is hard to remove, even with sharp debridement, because it always comes back. Um, it's um, surprisingly, it also shows the benefit of, of uh, imaging device. Oftentimes, you don't know where the biofilm is. You, you know, you can tell that the 
the wound's in this chronic inflamed state, but we can see right where it is in the wound, uh, which is pretty exciting. And then um, the other point is that, you know, we've taken kind of off the shelf antibiotics and other antimicrobials and shown that some are, are relatively decent at um, reducing the exopolysaccharide matrix. Some are better at uh, destroying the, or at least reducing the bacterial bio burden and others are very ineffective. And so it's a nice way to screen for kind of the best products that are in the industry. Um, and Phil will tell you that not everybody's silver is good as another silver. There really is tremendous differences in the quality of the antimicrobials that are produced in wound care. And this would be a nice way of kind of leveling the playing field and maybe hopefully getting rid of some of these products that don't work or aren't very effective. That's such an important point, Mitch, that you brought up as well as uh, with Phil, is that we're looking for strategies to disrupt this biofilm, really. And part of the challenge we've had, obviously, is identifying the biofilm in the first place and bringing it into the sort of wound care terminology that people start thinking that if a wound is still, then there, there may be biofilm as a, as a big factor. But uh, can I talk a little bit now just on um, treatments for antibiofilm uh, treatments? So predominantly, we're looking at antimicrobials and also physical um, mechanisms. Are there anything else that you think the audience should know about that? A number, a number of new products, and not all of them are kind of. I think some are out in Europe, Phil, right? And but not all of them are approved by the FDA yet. Um, there's a great product that's being uh, was developed by Kane Biotech called Dispersin B, which yeah. actually disrupts the exopolysaccharide matrix. And um, you know, there's we're waiting on. Um, I don't think that's approved yet. I think they're still working through the FDA and other other things. Um, but there's some other products that are going after the nucleic acids. And um, and then the, you know, we think about uh, some of the um, some of the other formulations, antimicrobial formulations often have a detergent in them so they can uh, kind of disrupt the biofilm in a different way, get rid of the lipids, right? Mm -hmm. And so a, a product that I think of is Blastex. Maybe there's um, others that, you, and I think Blastex also has PHMB, doesn't it, Phil? Uh, yes, I think it does, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think they're making combinations of, of uh, products that have either something that can, uh, that's a detergent based, but also has an antimicrobial in there. So you get a, a killing effect and um, as well as a disruption of the biofilm through some sort of detergent. And then there's a lot of mechanical debriding <laughs> agents out there, whether it's mist or ultrasound, or there's a lot of things that can, can really um, remove the biofilm that are very interesting, that are, that are kind of coming to the foray in the industry. Bill, yeah, do you I think, have comments yeah, on that, Yeah, yeah, sure, Nagan. Yeah, I... I think there are there are two main aspects to dealing with biofilm. What one is the first is to prevent biofilm formation in the first place. Um, you know, going back to I think what was it? Um, oh, it was the uh, the nineteen seventies. Now, uh, Bill Costerton, one of the absolute pioneers in the in the field of biofilm, he he published a paper. Um, in the Scientific American called um, How Bacteria Stick. Um, biofilm hadn't been introduced at that time. The term biofilm hadn't been introduced, but he was talking about 
these um, uh, polysaccharide fibers, he, he, he referred to them as glycocalyx, um, and how they help bacteria to stick to surfaces. And what he said all those years ago was, um, maybe by preventing bacteria sticking, uh, we can come up with a new antibiotic. That's how I referred to it at the time. So preventing bacteria sticking in the first place is is the best way to go. Uh, because if you can prevent bacteria sticking, you're going to prevent biofilm formation. So whether it's the physical nature of a of a of a surface, um, uh, whether it's you, you know bio, biochemical uh, components um, of of medical devices, uh, then you know that that is a way forward. Not not just in wound care, but that is is certainly a way forward in preventing biofilm formation and, and the subsequent problems associated with that and then you know the the, the rest is about uh, really uh, dis disrupting biofilm um, and you know as Mitch said there's there's many different approaches um, uh, and I think in wound care um, you know the term wound hygiene has, has been uh, used quite a lot recently and there's been various publications referring to wound hygiene and uh, you know this is a essentially a toolkit it, it's a process involving uh, nothing that, that that's startling in in wound care but it is about debridement it's about cleansers it's about using appropriate antimicrobial dressings because each of these components has, has got a role to play in wound care um you know the physical debridement you know whether it is sharp or surgical or a gauze a sterile gauze pad or uh, microfilaments or larvae you know these are all um, methods of helping to remove what I always call the unwanted tissue get rid of that unwanted tissue which could be host devitalized tissue as, as well as biofilm um, but that is a really key step in in removing the bulk of of, of the biofilm but of course, it, it won't remove everything. So cleansers, they may be antimicrobial cleansers, they may be uh, surfactants that are also important, as well as the as the antimicrobial dressings. And I think, um, you know, in in that respect, um, and that's that's what I was very much involved uh, with when I was at Comatech was developing a, an antibiofilm wound dressing, which was a combination of antibiofilm components and the antimicrobial component which is is silver because by having those two antibiofilm uh, components they disrupt the biofilm cause the biofilm to collapse allowing the silver in the dressing to work much more effectively against the the now exposed bacteria the planktonic cells um and there have been some fantastic clinical results in in that respect as well so um there are many new emerging technologies but i think ultimately it's that that whole wound care process that whole wound hygiene process um involving several steps that are required really to to get a grip of the biofilm and help these hard to heal wounds to heal and and phil had a great paper on um how the ph of the wound changes when you have a biofilm and, and the bacteria prefer more of a acidic ph it 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 creeps creeps up over time right phil so they like a higher ph yeah 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 well uh, you know there, there's been quite a few publications on the effect of, of of ph on on wound healing and certainly 
the chronic wounds, the hard to heal wounds, tend to have a a, a pretty a pretty high pH. Um, and again, there've been papers published on you know the optimal uh, pH for um, activity of of components, antimicrobial components like silver, uh, which tends to be on the you know around neutral to to acidic pH. And then there's some new chemical debriders that are out in Europe that are not yet in the U.S. Uh, that are very very low pH, almost um, uh, yeah acid solutions, if you will. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that that's that's absolutely right. One of them is um, is 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 buffered. Um, it, it is um, a hypochlorite, but it is buffered to to take that that pH up a, a little bit. But yeah, there are the, the, the chemical dividers as well. Yeah. Thank you very well, Megan, much. Megan, I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Dr. Sanders and Dr. Bowler. You know, it's it's amazing to have this discussion on such a vital topic like biofilm with you. And uh, you've brought so much insight as to, you know, where we've come from and what the future is looking like for biofilm uh, treatment. So. Thanks, gentlemen, for participating in this segment. Really enjoyed it. Great Thanks to see very you. much. Really enjoyed it too. Yeah, glad to be part. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks very Bye. much. Thanks very much. And we'll continue to take questions from the audience at this point. And we're going to go on now to our interactive patient <coughs> to look at some patient management cases with our global experts. Please stay tuned for our next segment, which is the Wound Masterclass Academy Interactive Patient Clinics. This is a fully interactive segment. Please continue to ask your questions in the group chat. Joining us in the interactive clinic today is Dr. Perry Mayer. He is director of the Mayer Institute in Ontario and is also a board member of SanyaWave. Dr. Joseph Byrne, an esteemed vascular surgeon who's also a medical legal consultant specializing in vascular ulcers, diabetic foot ulcers, and medical legal reports. Last but not least, Dr. Matt Garafoulis, who is previous president of the American Podiatric Medical Association and is also charge of the Alliance of Wound Care Stakeholders, as well as medical director of AOTI, Advanced Oxygen Therapy. So thank you very much for joining us, gentlemen. Um, we're looking forward to spending the next hour with you just discussing these patients that we have attending our virtual clinic today. So let's get started. Please let me know if you can see my screen. Yes. Great. Yeah. Yes. yes. Great. Everybody can see that. Lovely. Um, so this is a diabetic patient who is attending for the first time uh, to our virtual clinic. So um, he is in his uh, late 30s and he is a type 1 diabetic he's otherwise generally fit and well and he attends to us essentially complaining of discomfort around the lateral border of his foot so shall we get started gentlemen should we talk a little bit about how do we assess this patient when he comes into our virtual clinic this is uh, something in, in, in our wheelhouse this is what we see all the all the time um when patients like this come in it's it's that story of unknown uh, wounds um, just appearing overnight. Um, when we would assess this patient, obviously we'd sort of take a thorough history about their medical history and, and, the, and the like, but we narrow it down to their diabetic history and try to look at their target work and then go down to their feet 
and start examining them, um, you know, thoroughly again, vascular, neurological, and then inspection, and then start, then, then we have to start. So the, the, the first assessment is um, asking the questions, um, looking at their feet, and then formulating a plan, and then we start. Um, right. Shall we talk a little bit about the type of vascular examination we would normally do in this kind of patient with a diabetic foot ulcer? Yes, obviously, uh, you would start with the pulses. Uh, strong palpable pulses, of course, would be would be very nice. If there's any question about the pulses, we would always do a, an ankle brachial pressure index, measure the blood pressure in the, the dorsalis pedis and the posterior tibial arteries, and just use a blood pressure cuff to compare that to the arm pressure. And it's very simple, can be done by the nurse right at the bedside. That would give you, I think, a good idea of his basic vascular status. The skin looks surprisingly... Uh, healthy. I'm not sure what part of the foot this is on, but I'm struck by the uh, the healthy appearance of the skin around the ulcer. Yes, um, and this is a young patient, uh, sort of first presentation of a wound. Uh, so, right. yeah. Yeah, and, he appears vastly intact. Is that hair growth I see? Yeah, it's so, pretty so hair. That's, very you know, we don't get to there. see that it's very just... often in the that's true. And uh, shall we talk a little bit about measuring the sort of neurovascular um, sensation? Well, so yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what you guys do, uh, whether it, it is a, a monofilament, but uh, we, we use a biothesiometer because so, we want a, some kind of a number. We wanted a number uh, attached to uh, and that's validated. So I'd like to I, I'm curious what others use. Um, to make it also quick. That's the other issue here. And what sort of standardized, Dr. Mary, you're dealing with a lot of diabetic foot ulcers in your in your practice. Do you have a sort of performer that you go through when you're doing your um, assessment or is it something that um, you sort of dictate the letter um, afterwards or what's your sort of, what's your opinion on, uh, first of all, gathering that information from the history and the examination, but what's the best format when you've got a sort of high output clinical service that you're offering, what's the best way to um, ensure the documentation? What, what do you find works best in practice? For, for their neurological assessment, the biothesiometer is the, the best way to do it because you are actually generating a number. So the volts uh, in, in, our, in our case, um, and, and, and that's easy and it's standardized, reproducible, uh, and gives you trackable kind of uh, data, um, and is and sort of from a from a metrics perspective in the clinic, it, it we wouldn't want to be horsing around with monofilaments or anything like that. Take too much time. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Garifoulis, what sort of factors would would be important for you at this stage when you're sort of determining uh, treatment options for this this kind of patient? Well, if we're we're okay with his uh, circulatory status, we understand his neurologic status. Um, we'd like to understand a little bit about how the wound came about. When did the patient notice it? What he's done so far? Um, if if we understand that, then we can begin the treatment of the wound. Which this particular wound will need a bit of debridement to get started with. Um, I've, I have a sense that his vascular status is going to be in pretty good shape. So we do need to do some debridement. I'm a big fan of uh, aggressive debridement. 
And um, so that would be something that we would do right off the bat. And once we can get a clearer picture of that wound, we can then understand what type of dressings we're going to put on that wound and what kind of treatments we're going to give it. Fantastic. And Dr. Byrne, you and I have had this discussion before um, about, I think, a, a case that you were involved with reviewing um, of another clinician. And uh, it was essentially a similar setting, wasn't it? A diabetic uh, heel ulcer. Yeah. Yes, the, the, the problem with this patient is the, the physician who saw the patient didn't appreciate that the vascular situation was, was not very uh, satisfactory. So he went ahead and debrided a very ischemic foot. And that, of course, is a, as I'm sure you all realize, is a huge mistake. It's like throwing gasoline on the fire. Uh, shortly after there, two or three days later, the entire foot blew up with sepsis and he ended up with a baloney amputation. So I, I always emphasized you revascularize before you debride the wound. Uh, and I'm sure that's a principle that you, you're all very well aware of, but just to make that point. Recap for the audience, yes. And we've got a live audience with us today and uh, we can take any questions uh, from the audience if you want to just okay. put that in the chat. Um, so we all agree that vascular status is a really important factor to examine and document. Uh, obviously, sensation we've discussed um, is vitally important. Are there any other factors that we'd want to know? We've mentioned the peri-wound area um, on examination, but is there anything else that you would normally examine in this sort of clinical scenario? I would be wondering if there's some pressure from some uh, shoe or perhaps uh, something that was in his shoe that he didn't notice. We we had a patient once who had his watch fall into his shoe. He <laughs> noticed that for two or three weeks. So, uh, that's the other thing I would be concerned about is that he injured this externally in some way. Fantastic. And, and uh, uh, sorry, it's a good opportunity. I, I don't, in in our clinic, we we're we're doing we're we're treating diabetes as well. So we're kind of, so we're using the the treatment of the diabetic foot as a as a as a lever to uh, influence their diabetic um, management and their target work. And so we're 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 using it as an educational opportunity. And so these ulcers, let's say, let's in this particular person who appears young. Um, and early on, you know, hairy wound and all, um, the it's an opportunity because they're surprised. They don't know how in the world such a thing could occur. And here you are, you're the wound doc and you're down there, you know, carving away at the wound. It's an opportunity to uh, share with them exactly why this is so serious and what is in store for them in the future. And so and, and it's a teaching point. So they also are going to probably be coming, certainly in, in our hands, they're going to be coming back to us probably more frequently than they would any other doctor because they're high risk. They come back frequently for preventative care. And at all those times, you know, you can use it as an educational point. But at that moment, though, is a great time to teach and to, 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 to allow that uh, patient to understand better. Right. And shall we uh, talk a little bit about documenting the wound size, di dimensions, uh, parameters, essentially? What what do you find in your practice? Uh, do you find clinical photography of a wound um, so that uh, you can monitor its progress over the sort of following uh, weeks? Or do you have any other uh, tips or tricks for our global audience? Now, bear in mind, some of our audience may be in areas where... Um, they have a high output uh, patient caseload. And so just kind of trying to gauge from your advice, obviously 
previously we used to always measure uh, the dimension of the wound. Sometimes people would do templates of the wound uh, and put them in the paper notes. But obviously we're now moving a little bit to the digital uh, paper-free side of things. So I would value any uh, advice from the panel. Measuring is always important. Every visit needs to be documented with measurements. Um, and now, of course, as you mentioned, with uh, the digital era that we're in, photography is is great. You can actually incorporate that into the medical record. So um, any method that is uh, common for the, the area that you practice in would be perfectly acceptable. It's just important to do it on every visit. Uh, I think when you when you come in the room and you look at a series of weekly photographs, you quickly grasp the idea of whether you're making progress or losing progress. Uh, so I, I really think everyone needs to make an effort. And I always emphasize this for the nursing homes and the hospitals as well. I think the wound, the wound care centers do seem to do a good job at this. It's part of their routine. But once they get into the hospital or the nursing home, people stop taking pictures. And I think this is when the communication breaks down and people don't realize that a wound's getting worse. The measurements don't often tell you the entire story. So I think if there's one thing we could do, we'd encourage everybody to try to get regular photographs. Fantastic. And in terms of instigating treatment, so we've touched briefly on this kind of wound would generally need um, debridement and getting it back to a healthy wound bed, obviously after we've done the vascular assessment. And then can I kind of distill from your clinical experience, what kind of treatment options would you offer a patient like this generally if, if they came to see you in your clinic? Um, so maybe Dr. Dr. G, I'll come to you first. Sure. Well, definitely, um, if this is in a pressure-bearing area, we need to offload that, that wound right off the bat. Um, make sure that it's protected and uh, there's no pressure on the what we discover after we debride the wound. Um, then we have a, a variety of choices of wound dressings to put on there. Um, whatever we're most comfortable with as a practitioner is a great thing. Um, you can go very simple, like um, a cadexum or iodine dressing is very simple to put on if that's all that's needed for this type of wound. If you want to use a skin substitute, um, that is a great idea also, depending on what you discover after debridement. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, incorporating topical oxygen, uh, cyclical pressurized topical oxygen as part of the treatment regime so that you can use the dressing of your choice as well as the added therapy of oxygenating this wound. Um, typically, this wound is looking to me like it needs um, some therapy like that very quickly, and it'll help speed the healing process and give that wound a more durable and uh, sustaining outcome. Thank you very much. Do you think there's any role in negative pressure wound therapy in this kind of wound? Yes, there could very well be a role for negative pressure, depending on the drainage that's coming out of this wound and um, what you discover after debridement. Negative pressure could be an option for first first start. And Dr. Mayor, if I come to you next, what's your feeling on this kind of wound and, and the types of wounds that you manage in your institute? Well, so you so here in up in Canada, we we uh, we are somewhat limited or to what kind of products we're going to be using, and um, skin substitutes we are we we'd love to be able to. I, I certainly would love to get my uh, hands on them on a regular basis, but we we do not. So, but if, if, if with regards to this patient, I think we all would agree that 
you know, offloading, debridement, and putting something on uh, in an advanced treatment modality mode is what will get this person back in action. And these are, you know, particularly if they're younger, they're a little bit sort of easier to, to get to, to do that. Um, but the, the, the automatic thing that we would do is we would put them into like a, like a post-op shoe that kind of slows them down a bit and gives them some room up in the forefoot um, and uh, allows that wound, that wound to be dressed. And in, in, I'm, we're lucky uh, here uh, in Ontario in particular, we have a home care uh, nursing that is excellent and uh, we can send out orders and have that wound dressed out in the field uh, to, uh, to hold them off um, uh, until they can come back to see us for uh, wound care. Um, but again, we would probably, you know, the, the, the advanced wound treatment modality, um, you know, it, it's your, your choice. Um, certainly the standard ones, um, like Kidex Island is, is an excellent choice. And this is, looks like a kind of a smallish kind of wound. So it'd be, it'd be kind of good that way, but, uh, we would, if it was a bit stubborn, uh, we would start using some external, um, modalities and, and there's lots of them out there. Um, we, we like our uh, um, shockwave therapy. It, it would is very helpful in in wounds like this to get them uh, get them going. Um, we would probably reserve it for a little bit later, but um, it is very helpful. But again, these are relatively straightforward wounds that would probably respond to the offloading debridement, uh, putting something on it uh, kind of approach. And I suppose one factor that we've um, discussed also is that we're assuming that this wound um, is not infected, but uh, obviously um, as part of our assessment when we're doing the vascular and neurological assessment, we would also, um, if there was clinical suspicion, uh, would you take a swab normally if a patient like this had come in um, acutely to your clinic or would you just judge it whether clinically looks infected uh, or looks colonized? I do like to say the culture, uh, one culture at least, uh, at the beginning, I think it's a simple thing to do. Uh, it sometimes will be really helpful. The other thing I would say, uh, there's no question there's a lot of significant bacteria here. I would, if I had it available, I would like some for sort of a cellulose collagen dressing, maybe one that had silver in it, uh, like Prisma. Uh, so you'd have both the collagen, which would soak up the, the uh, destructive enzymes. Uh, so the enzymes will degrade the collagen instead of degrading your healing wound. And uh, you would also have the topical antibiotic coverage. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Shall we move on to our next patient now? Um, let's see, you just let me know if you can see the screen now. We have this patient who um, is an African-American and he essentially has an, an area on the inside medial aspect of his right lower leg. Um, and this wound has been present for three months and it has been resistant to um, any topical treatments, including um, basic dressings and also some advanced dressings. Uh, so um, would we like to have a discussion about what sort of factors we would like to know um, about this patient? So Mr. Byrne, shall I come, Dr. Byrne, shall I come to you first? Yes, well, I, I think the first thing I would ask is whether he has sickle cell disease or not. This is certainly uh, one reason to have a, such a refractory ulcer. Uh, I also think he clearly has some venous disease. Uh, you can see he's, he's got significant edema. He has a lot of telangiectasias uh, down by the distal part of the ankle. So uh, 
this certainly could be a multifactorial ulcer, but I, I think that compression would probably be something I would try in this wound. Uh, if it's a sickle cell ulcer, they, they are very difficult to treat no matter how, how you do it. But I think I would start out with compression and uh, see if that would, would assist this ulcer. Right. And in terms of assessment of this wound, um, would go through the same, um, I guess, uh, checks that we did uh, with the previous patient in that we're checking the vascular status, neurological status, and perhaps, as you've mentioned, to consider doing some systemic blood tests, um, as well as a sickle cell test. So talking about um, considering biopsy or any atypical presentations, if you had a patient uh, that had a, a wound that was resistant to other treatment modalities, are there any other sort of uh, considerations you would make in terms of other diagnostics? Well, bio did you say that, there, that a biopsy had been taken or that not yet. No, I no, just. So we should take a I think we should take a biopsy of that, and and even so, not only that a biopsy, but a uh, for pathology. But we should get a good core um, biopsy for culture to see if there's anything odd in that um, uh, in, growing in there. And and was there anything in the history about how it started? There wasn't any recent travel. I think that's what you're sort of. Uh kind of well, discussing it. Yeah, yeah absolutely so obviously that's another factor that uh, is important for any patient to ask uh, whether there's been any travel anywhere where there have been any insect bites I mean I suppose uh, also kind of uh, tick-borne conditions may need to be um, kind of consideration uh, so we talk a little bit uh, Dr. Brown me and you've discussed before um, how some conditions can be um, easily missed in early stages um, Yes, I, I certainly agree. I think a biopsy is very important at this point, and uh, sometimes you will find something surprising. The, the the one that I talked with you about the most, I think, is pyoderma gangrenosum, which is one that I have found to be surprisingly uh, much more common than you would expect. It's supposed to be a disease of one in 100,000 people, but we would often collect a census of 10 or 15 of these patients in a <laughs> care center. They come from all over. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing I would be concerned about uh, right off the bat. Uh, the malignancy also would, would be a possibility in this wound, but uh, I think this is where the biopsy is going to really be helpful at the, off the bat to really get you started in the right direction. Great. Thanks, gentlemen. And so this uh, actually turned out to be a venous leg ulcer. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about management of, of that condition. Well, compression of a venous leg ulcer is uh, the gold standard. So... We always need to compress this. Um, again, using, if it's a, a, a simple venous ulcer, we need to understand from a vascular point of view, does the patient need any surgical intervention, any ligation or anything like that to help control an, an underlying source of ulceration? And if um, if that needs to be done, it should be done right away. If it, if it's okay and it, it doesn't be, isn't needed, then go ahead and treat with compression, a topical dressing, some debridement. Of course, these can be very painful. So you may need to use an anesthetic agent or take the patient to the OR to do the debridement. Um, but the wound should be cleaned up at some point. And then the compression. This is another case where we would use a cyclical pressurized topical oxygen because it offers a, a mode of compression as, as well as oxygenation to these tissues. 
Um, so I think you get the whole package. Again, if it's a draining wound, if there's a lot of drainage, you may want to use a little bit of negative pressure on this perhaps. Uh, but there's all sorts of modalities that we can use in treating a venous stasis ulcer that'll help speed up the healing process and give it sustainability down the road. And are there any sort of comments there, Dr. Byrne, about medical legal aspects of, of this type of, of wound? Are there any tips and tricks for us as clinicians to bear in mind when documenting? Yes. Uh, well, of course, uh, as we discussed our, our last time out, the most common uh, cause for lawsuits and leg ulcers is uh, failure to make the correct diagnosis. So uh, there again, I think the biopsy is important. And most of the things that I see go wrong are in wounds that were left too long without it. A tissue diagnosis. So uh, that, that, again, I think getting that done and getting that done pretty early is important. And Dr. Garifunas also mentioned a really important point. Obviously, anything that we suspect may be a venous leg ulcer is important to get that early imaging, duplex imaging of the superficial and deep venous systems and get that organized and documented so that at least you can exclude that as a, as a reason for, for a wound that's not healing. Yeah, that's very important. I do that on um, every venous stasis also that comes in so we get a clear picture of what's happening beneath the surface of the skin. And in terms of distribution of, of venous leg ulcers, what sort of, um, for our global audience who may not be, you know, um, have as much expertise as this panel uh, in obviously seeing patients with venous leg ulcers, what kind of distributions are you typically um, considering venous leg ulcers for appearing? Well, we get distributions um, along the medial aspect of the leg, sometimes laterally as well, um, various depth and diameters depending on the underlying disease. But I think as soon as you, you see an ulcer coming in that's on the lower leg, the first thing you're going to think about is, okay, let's see if this is a venous leg ulcer. But you also have to bear in mind the differential diagnosis that we all talked about earlier of the different things that this could be. Uh, starting off with the initial um, hunch that it's a venous leg ulcer is great, but you also have to look at all the other possibilities that are that are available as well. I suppose the other possibilities are arterial ulceration or mixed venous and arterial ulceration. And I think, Dr. Brown, this is something you've had a lot of experience over the years in vascular surgery. Yes, I think it's that so many people have a combination of arterial and venous disease that it's very important to uh, try to differentiate which is the most important part of the pathology. Uh, certainly, again, uh, we, we developed a rule that we would not put compression wraps on a patient unless we had an ankle branchial pressure index on the chart. Uh, what happens is someone will write down that they felt pulses and then all the people that come along after that refer to that first note. And it's easy to fall into the trap that this is a venous ulcer and we keep treating it and treating it. And next thing you know, two months has gone by and we've lost important time. So, yes, I think uh, before you compress a leg like this, if you can't feel the pulses clearly, probably even if you can, it's not a bad idea to, have, to make a policy in your clinic of having an ABPI on the chart. All right. And in terms of documentation, do we find that it's easier that we just document each patient individually, or do we find that proformas work in a in a high output setting? Uh, what's your what's your feeling on that? Do you think the proforma with the checkboxes actually will kind of remind you not to miss any aspects of that 
history or examination or do you find that it's actually better just to have your own system of of taking that history examining and documenting i, I think the is fine as long as it's broad enough and, and the other the pro forma it, it, it is totally fine for sure but i, I find that people well let's just say that in our clinic we have a routine where we go through and documentation is photographic um and you know we, 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 the checkbox part of it our problem because they use that in the hospital uh in our in our town and they and and it turns out that they they they, they check boxes and don't think about what they're actually doing so it's actually not a exercise in examination it's an exercise in documentation and that's different so when and so that's a distinction that you know i think it should be made that you know these efficiencies are really good if you're accurate in what you're actually putting down there and not doing it just for documentation purposes so it's quite easy i guess to be blinkered when you're in wound care if you if someone mm. comes in and it's been referred to you as a venous leg ulcer or a diabetic foot ulcer I suppose it can become quite blinkered is that you think that's the diagnosis and then therefore um, you instigate a chain of treatment options related to what you thought your diagnosis was initially. Um, and I suppose the performer is the same because the checkboxes are all there. You may not be looking for those features that you would be looking at if you were just documenting yourself. You maybe go into this autopilot mode where it's a checkbox and it doesn't require much thinking behind that. Uh, ticking that box in essence so is this is the pro forma i'm curious now because uh, is pro forma kind of documentation common you know down in the states is that a or over in europe and england is that a a common way for um clinics to to document their uh examinations well it, it can be especially in a very busy clinic they just want to have a checkbox that you go down. Um, but I think that you want to make sure, like I mentioned earlier, that if you do it that way, that it's broad enough so that you have the option of of going down a slightly different path so you don't miss any of the, the various mm -hmm. diagnoses that we've discussed as a possibility here. You sure don't want to miss those. So that type of a methodology will work fine as long as it's broad enough. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So we're on to this next patient now who um, essentially had a period of immobilization and uh, was an inpatient on the surgical ward and has been referred up for basically wound assessment. Uh, so shall we talk through this one together? Wow. <laughs> yes, I think yeah, this is the, just... <laughs> to my view, wow. this is a classical, uh, uh, Dr. Fife calls this uh, an angiosomal infarct. Uh, it looks to me like uh, there's been an occlusion of the blood vessels to this area of the sacrum. The whole area has died. This is different than just to say a straightforward pressure ulcer. This to me looks more like a almost a widespread infarction. Uh, when these patients are, are close to death, they, it's called a Kennedy terminal ulcer, but I think it's also occurs now in, in many of the patients that we have who are so old and in the hospital with multiple organ system failure. So uh, I, I would put this in that category. 
And in terms of, obviously, a lot of these patients may be coming to us from nursing home settings. Uh, what sort of aspects should we should we consider with patients like this in terms of, obviously, documentation? And uh, Dr. Brown, you've seen a lot of medical legal cases similar to yeah, this. The, the important thing, uh, uh, you and I have talked before about this shocking fact that there are 17,000 lawsuits a year in the United States over pressure ulcers. It's a shocking number. Uh, it's hard to believe, but uh, these are the most, these are the easiest things for someone to, to to pick up on. We don't, if a patient has heart failure, we don't say, well, who was negligent here or renal failure, but it's some, somehow when the skin fails, uh, people immediately begin to want to sue the hospital or the nursing home. So I think the, to me, the key here is, is communication with the patient and the family. Uh, and this is also where I think the pictures come into play. You need to show the family and the patient these pictures, uh, impress on them that this is a serious problem, tell them what you're going to do about this. And, and there has to be regular communication follow-up because if you let this problem fester, you're going to be seeing the lawyer next. Uh, so I, again, communication, documentation with photos, I think this is the key to warding those off. Right, and absolutely. So this this may have been an earlier picture of this of the same same injury essentially progressing. So if we sort of turn the clock back, what would we do at this stage to avoid it things getting worse in terms of um, progressing onto a, a stage that's going to need um, either major reconstruction or other uh, options which are more advanced? Well, the, the obviously the, the the main culprit is the pressure. So I think that the you know the sleeping surface has to be topped up and and properly assessed and certainly in a nursing home if that's where they're residing they, that needs to be a priority and the physician and the nursing staff need to be in tune with each other to understand what it means to maneuver such a patient that those patients need to be moved they need to be uh uh, repositioned frequently, and um, and then the dressing choices. I mean, there's a there's a lot to choose from, but certainly you also have to be aware that they can't be sitting there in their bed with a sopping wet dressing on. Um, that also needs to be considered. Otherwise, the wound will get worse. Um, just for that very reason, and forget about the pressure part of it. So this is a, uh, it's a big problem. I don't, you know, in the hospitals, it's a, sh it's shocking now, um, even with major, um, you know, uh, publicized cases of um, pressure injuries, they're, they're not in tune with each other. The, the, the teams don't understand what is, what's needed. It, this is a really terrible problem here, but in this particular case, just, maneuvering the patient making rotating them or repositioning and a new surface would do wonders for this person mm -hmm. and any other factors such as nutrition and uh, obviously establishing the other patients comorbidities um so it's, i guess we're looking here now for tips and tricks on which patients uh should we keep in that red flag category to try and avoid them from getting into that situation so essentially looking at patient factors uh, predominantly. 
patients perhaps with uh, low albumins, poor nutrition, maybe on long-term steroids, immunocompromised patients, patients who are on long-term bed rest. Um, but it's essentially trying to do that pressure injury prevention. Uh, yes, I, I certainly do all those things. And one thing I'd like to ask the panel, uh, I noticed in this wound, maybe you could show it again, uh, there is some rolling in at the edge, some epiboly there. And uh, I always struggle with uh, at the top, for example, or maybe from 12 o'clock to three o'clock, you see the rolled ridge there of yeah. epiboly. I wonder uh, how important the, the panel feels it is to try to debride that. Should you leave that alone or should you try to remove that? When you're, you're going to obviously be debriding this wound, but I guess my question is, where do you stop when you get to the margin in a wound like this? Well, that, that edge is going to have the most difficult part, the difficult time to heal out of all the rest of this wound. So it's going to have to be addressed at some point. The The biggest factor is when do you address it? Um, do you address it right off the bat? Um, or are you going to wait and see if you get healing in the rest of the wound? So you want to limit the amount of times this patient has to go to, to surgery or to have that type of debridement here. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that part, that edge of the wound is going to be the most challenging yeah. part to, to heal. It's interesting. The, the, so, um, so we would do two things. So uh, the, we, we would, we would start the wound healing process normally we would debride and then let it start going with whatever dressing we're going to use, see what the rest of the wound is. So the, so the, bottom half of that wound see what it does and how the skin moves how the cells move around and get moving and then at the same time take a look and see whether that ridge up at the top end starts to develop some undermining and whether whether you can get it to kind of start to 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 kind of be more contiguous uh with the wound bed just so that you're not really sort of carving up the patient too much on the initial phases and you know, see how the wound responds. But the other, so that would be kind of the one scenario, but we also use it so that the, our uh, shockwave therapy uh, that we use um, is, is quite handy in that regard because that is kind of like scar tissue in, in a sense. And the shockwave therapy um, has a very interesting effect in, it, in that it thins that out, so to speak. And so we would, we would consider that as well in this particular wound for that very reason. So essentially we're looking at debridement and then I guess the reconstructive ladder for us would be uh, debridement, simple dressings, debridement, negative pressure wound therapy, debridement, rotational flap. And I guess with the rotational flap, we're looking at how much X, I mean, from a plastics perspective, there is a lot of skin laxity uh, to the right of that wound, which is superior and also to the inferior portion. So in terms of, being able to rotate healthy tissue. And obviously the main factor is, will this reoccur because of the factors that produce the original area of um, pressure? Um, and then I guess also the next, if we didn't want to consider reconstruction with a, a rotational flap would be looking at debridement and any advanced modalities that may convert this somewhat chronic wound to try and flick that switch and make it into a, an acute wound just to try and stimulate healing. Um, so, um, I think with that, we'll, we'll close our, our interactive 
Patient Clinic. Thank you very much to all of our panel today for um, sharing their expertise. Um, it's really been a really good experience to kind of discuss these patients with you in this sort of setting. Uh, so thank you again for all your time and effort today. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you Kevin. for the invitation. Pleasure. Thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your day.